Welcome to the Iconic Brands Podcast, where we cover the best e-commerce brands, their story, the playbook that made them successful, and their founders. For each company, we'll discuss the history of the brand and their growth playbook, and we also occasionally do interviews with a founding member. We are here to help you navigate the changing world of e-commerce and to help you build the next iconic brand. Hello, guys. Nice to see you once again for the next edition of the pod, where we're going to talk about Shein. Uh, it's been a while since we've chatted. I think two weeks. Yeah, uh, yeah been least. a while. Uh, this was a very interesting one to research. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, a super controversial company on many fronts. Uh, digging into it was hard, which is uh, interesting given how big this company is. You know, usually the bigger the company, the more information you get. Uh, and then it's a matter of filtering through the stuff to see what's relevant or not. But in that case, I was actually surprised by how little company published or just interviews and stuff like that you could find on the company. Anyhow, we were able to find some great glimpses of information, which we're going to share. Uh, but I found that the research component of this pod to be almost like an investigation uh, where you really had to dig for some interesting elements, which was which was cool. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the harder that it is, it just adds like a little challenge that makes it interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. It was, it, it was good. And, and the company is super interesting as well. Yeah, one thing we realized during like our first few podcasts is relying on ChatGPT for research is just not the way to go. In terms of like getting specific stats and timelines, it's not it's not always accurate. So you need to double check everything. Oh, yeah. Like uh, perhaps just like as a side note, even for the audience, we obviously, you know, search for party information and all that kind of things. But we asked ChatGPT to help us kind of do the research. Honestly, 75% is wrong whenever you double check like the source of the uh, of the data and, and things like that. So it's, uh, it can be quite, quite misleading. Luckily, we're doing this for podcast prep. Uh, not like a lawyer who actually built up his defense based on ChatGPT. <laughs> I'm sure you saw that. Yeah. Uh, actually, got his li- uh, you know lawyer license revoked, which uh, was kind of shameful. Anyhow, uh, be mindful about the AIs; they don't always say the truth. Uh, okay, cool. So uh, maybe let's get started. Um, there's a lot of grounds to cover uh, on the business side of uh, on the history side of the business. But more interestingly, on the kind of tactical and strategic side as well, I'm quite excited for this for this part. Um, let's get going. Uh, I'm going to start with the intro of the business, just giving kind of a quick TLDR of, of where it comes from. Um, so the founding story is already quite blurry. Uh, there's conflicting sources uh, in different places, even on the company's own website. It states that it was founded in 2012. Uh, whereas it apparently seems from other sources <coughs> that the initial part of the story actually started in 2008, uh, 2008. Uh, two different names. Uh, one name for this company, which was founded in 2008, was ZZKKO. Uh, and another name that I found, you know, uh, following kind of a few articles was that the first version of the company was actually called Nanjing Dineway Information Technology. This business was actually co-founded by uh, Chris Xu, which is, uh, you know, the known founder of Shane, the actual kind of CEO founder of the company, and two other persons. The persons were uh, Wang Xiaohu, uh, who had apparently equal share with Chris Xu, 
which was uh, at this time uh, must have been 45% each. And then there was a consultant called Li Peng, which had 10% on the company, of the company. And it was like a classical dropshipping business in that they were, their goal was to sell to the U.S. China manufactured stuff without having to you know, manufacture anything or even own anything, just acting kind of that, um, you know, uh, liaison agent, uh, which is kind of a known business in e-commerce. Um, and apparently what happened is that after a few months, Chris disappeared uh, with uh, all the money they had in their PayPal account. And he effectively kicked them out of the business. Um, this is a controversial kind of statement and topic, and there's very little information on that. Uh, so if you try to dig for formal complaints or even interviews, there's very little you can actually find on that origin story. But there's still quite a few sources saying that. And there was actually a statement from, uh, I believe it was Li Peng back in uh, the early uh, 2010s, uh, that was kind of alluding to that effect. So uh, I don't know what is true, what is not, but there is kind of an interesting, I would say, conflicting uh, startup story for for this entire kind of project. Uh, and Li Peng will be, um, a, uh, you know, someone that we'll see again further down the story. Uh, but anyhow, uh, Chris apparently disappeared with the money. Uh, and so for 2008 to 2011, uh, very little information on how the company kind of behave and acted, you know, what they were kind of actually doing. For all this part of history, you can just assume it's like a traditional dropshipping business, uh, basically. Uh, and it was kind of run by Chris Shu. Then in March 2011, they bought or Chris bought the domain She Inside, uh, which was the first name of the company, She Inside. Uh, and, and this was the first era of the company where they were kind of branded them, branding themselves as a worldwide uh, wedding dress company. Uh, but they were also selling other women's stuff. But it was kind of really like a women-focused e-commerce site. Uh, and this was kind of the, I would say, when the company really started to become the she-in that we know today. Uh, so this was really much, you know, very much inception day. I think the first three years, 20. 08 to 2011 were, uh, you know, kind of a bit of a blurrier period and, and <clears throat> not a very strong base to kind of anchor what it actually became, you know, further down the line. Uh, today, the company is obviously huge. Uh, so they employ more than 10K employees uh, across the world. They sell in 150 plus countries. They don't uh, sell only women's clothing. They sell a lot of things um, going all the way to men, you know, size plus, jewelries, bags, um, and it's even broadening now that they're kind of focusing on a uh, third-party seller marketplace, something similar to Amazon, especially in the U.S. Uh, so the you can expect the library to actually grow to become even bigger than that. Uh, so what initially started more and more as a pure kind of e-com business or even dropshipping business evolved to an e-com business is actually starting to look a little bit more like Amazon. Uh, but we're going to discuss about that in the strategy section as well. Uh, but interesting kind of upbringing. The company has been on a tier. So uh, between 2014 and 2021, it apparently grew, doubled its size every single year. So seven consecutive years uh, of doubling the size. In uh, 2022, it shrinked uh, a little bit or just slowed down the pace, actually, of growth. Uh, so yeah, really they grew like by 60% uh, in 2022. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's also tough because by the time, that the size that they were in 2021, like you can 
you can't really like there's a certain plateau to it yeah so it, it makes sense that it, they couldn't <clears throat> just sustain that growth I, i mean it's a business making 24 billions in revenues today uh so getting to that point obviously every time you're trying to double it's kind of a huge huge huge, huge step uh They actually represent today 28% of the U.S. fast fashion market, uh, which is absolutely crazy. So a third of the U.S. Uh, kind of market for a company that's realistically, you know, because as we've said, you know, 2008 to 2011 was kind of a blurrier period. Uh, and they really only started like 2013 to kind of pursue this vertically integrated kind of strategy. So in like 10 years, they became this 24 billion behemoth in terms of revenue and and their valuation was actually in the round that they raised in 2021 i think pale you're going to talk more about it but they were at once valued at 100 billion dollar uh, uh which is which is that kind of crazy and they raised you know another round um i believe it was in 2022 at 66 billion valuation 66 billion dollar valuation uh so it shrinked you know the valuation shrinked uh but still remains kind of crazy when you think about this entire story and, and the way they've kind of grew. Uh, maybe g getting back a little bit to Sheen's kind of Sheen's, uh, kind of bi core business model and, and what they do and just trying to take it back to the evolution as well. But they're really a fast fashion company that operates, as they call it, on a pre-order basis, meaning that they don't think about what product to build, then design them, produce them, stock them in inventory, and then try to sell that inventory, which is basically the model that most retailers follow, whether it is, you know, super high-end like Louis Vuitton or fast fashion like Zara and H&M. Uh, so what they do instead uh, is actually operate on a pre-order basis or uh, as they call it. So they wait for people to show interest in a specific thing, a specific design, something they have to sell, and they can basically produce it instant, uh, instantly. So they don't have any inventory or very little inventory. That's kind of a core part of how they're able to get these price. Apparently, that's how they kind of justify that. I have some... Um, I, I ran some math, and we're going to be discussing about that. Um, obviously, I don't think not having inventory is enough to justify just how little their prices are. Um, but yeah, so, um, now they focus on this model where they basically capture data on what consumer preferences are on social media. They can turn around to their manufacturing, uh, manufacturing network extremely quickly, uh, ask them to produce, you know, a fixed number based on the demand they get. Uh, and then, you know, it's shipped to people after 10 days, uh, which is, which is, uh, kind of crazy. Uh, uh, an interesting data point just to see the scale of what they do. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I do remember them, like roughly speaking. In a year, H&M and, and Zara are going to be creating about 30 to 50,000 SKUs differently. Whereas when it comes to Shein, they'll be producing between one and two million SKUs uh, per year. Yeah, so it's not the same kind of model. So for Zara, H&M, it's fast fashion. So typical having, you know, just much more collections during a year than typically. Than typically. And for Shein... Is actually ultra fast fashion, so just every day releasing some new products on a continuous basis, and it's about ten thousand new products per day. So that's combining, you know, all the different styles for the different SKUs. But ten thousand is still much bigger than everyone else on the market. And what's interesting with them as well is that they also focus on lower amounts of initial items to see if it like, catches on, and then they'll do basically the same item but just in different colors or with like a small edit, um, which is also like quite interesting. 
So we're going to be diving into just how they do that from like the data integration standpoint, how they actually integrate with the manufacturers. All of that is going to be talked about in the kind of strategy section, uh, but it's super interesting and it's right. Everything that you're saying is actually kind of data driven, right? It's optimized to uh, ensure that cash flows are optimally managed. Uh, so that's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, then you have the hard mission of talking about the background of the founder, which as I've said, is quite blurry. Uh, but let's see, let's see what you got. Yeah. Just small disclaimer before, before starting that section is absolutely unsure whether all of the information I'm going to share are true or not. So Shu is actually an SEO expert, which means that he's able to cover his track in a way. And also it's also based in the Chinese market, which means that sometimes not, you know, all of the different information is transparent and real. Yeah. Uh, maybe quickly on that. Uh, I mean, all the numbers you can see from Chinese companies, especially private Chinese company, uh, are to take with a, either a grain of salt or, you know, uh, some suspicions. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen, you know, Lucky Coffee and just like many examples of Chinese company, huge ones reporting numbers that apparently, you know, ended up being like completely false. Um, so on the background of this founder specifically, whatever we can find, the conflicting sources, uh, I, I do have lots of doubts on what the true origin story of that business is. Yeah, you even just think about the year that the company was founded under on the Shein website, it states 2012, but actually it's 2008. So there's actually full of misdirects and different sources and different type of opinions on the story of the company as well as the playbook. So we, we try to, to make the best of, you know, everything that we managed to find, but still some disclaimer to be made there. But yeah, so... So for, for, from what we know, actually, the founder of Sheen is actually Chris Shu, as you mentioned before. His real name is Yang Tian Shu. Uh, he was born in 1984 in the province of Shandong in China. Uh, a lot of his, you know, early youth background is not really disclosed, so we don't know any any you know details about about him personally. But uh, he started his career, you know, just going to a typical trade school in China. There is different sources that said he went to American University, but from what we from what we know, he went to a trade school in China. What I could found is that he was an average student from a poor background. Yeah, from a poor background, exactly. So he he went to Qingdao, the University of Science Technology in Qingdao in China. He studied, you know, their marketing, and after graduating, he started to work at an online company selling, you know different products in commerce and he was doing a job just related to SEO brand marketing and that's where he realized there is an opportunity you know to sell Chinese goods overseas because we have you know some advantage on the manufacturing standpoint but if we can move those products and make them this you know discovered by yeah the base of drop yeah shipping. yeah exactly the base of the of drop shipping so that's where you know decided he decided to to jump and started the wedding, uh, the wedding company. Yeah, and from the wedding company, he there's actually like a lot of, of movement, kind of like what Joe introduced earlier today. But what is also interesting is that after kind of like the success of the wedding industry at, at the start, they also started focusing on more like in 2012 already, more selling like more general women's wear and also focusing on more English speaking customers where. After that, that's where they also like expanded to Europe, but we'll we'll talk about that a bit later on. 
And what's also really nice is that for, for Sheehan, what's nice is that they actually focused on their unfair advantage, where for Sheehan was really, from my perspective, is that it acquired its manufacturing items from the Guangzhou wholesale clothing market in China as that it was really, really cheap goods that allowing them to sell for cheap prices and still make a profit. Yeah, I think maybe it's worth like just sharing with the audience like how this exactly works in China because it's not even clear like to most people. Uh, but the things people buy, uh, the branded items that they buy, even from brands here in the US, but it's obviously like much bigger in China. It's, it's not actually these brands coming up with the design uh, and then telling the manufacturers, hey, design this to me. What actually happens is that in China, you have this huge market where manufacturers are actually coming up with designs and, the, <clears throat> you know, the specific trends and there's going to be leather jackets with a specific shape and all these kind of things. And brands come and actually shop on this huge market and they do very little changes to those base models to after that brand them. Uh, so this is exactly kind of the wholesale model that uh, Sheen went after in the early days. They just went in those markets, selected some items and resold them. But it's actually a lot closer to what's happening even with branded stuff in North America, in Europe, and especially in China, than what people think. The design comes a lot more from the manufacturer than from the brands in a lot of instances. Um, so that's an interesting thing to know that I actually didn't know Uh, was so widespread before actually kind of looking into it, just how big this actually, this market, this wholesale market yeah, and is. In those garments market, you know, everything is already moving really fast. So every week you'll see a different style. Everybody is just, you know, just experimenting with the same concept because that's the odd thing, that's the odd trend that, you know, customers, big clients want to get. So they all basically try to manufacture the same thing in order to sell them at the same time for cheap prices. So basically, you know, manufacturing there, And having the, your garments produced doesn't cost a lot. It's really when it comes to marketing and logistics, so shipping costs, fulfillment, that it comes expensive. So, you know, you can get a jacket there for, you know, a few bucks. So Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that was basically, like, Chris's, like, genius that he had this source, but then he did, like, basically, like you said, like, the rest of the work. No, no, that's interesting. I'm, I'm super excited to dive into the tech aspect of it. Uh, I have so many thoughts on just how they actually did it on the, at the tech level, but that's that's very cool. Maybe you wanted to talk about the funding story of the company, the round they've raised, the investors they got. Yeah, absolutely. So at the start, they actually started lots of the source of information that you'll see on Sheen actually mentions that they're bootstrapped. But if you look a bit further, it actually includes a, whole, a few investors. That includes like Jafco Asia, IDG Capital, and Greedwood's Asset Management, uh, which was all in 2012. So as you can see, it's still very, very early in, in, their, in their process, uh, where there's a few other investors a bit later on. Um, but I think in terms of timeline, it'd be maybe cool if we switch on to the company story. Yeah, the, well, what, what I can see here, uh, at least on Crunchbase, uh, is that they raised their Series A, Oh, yeah, look at how sketch this is. All their round are apparently January 1st. Uh, <laughs> but they apparently raised uh, their Series A in 2013, $5 million round from Jeff Coasia. Uh, and then they raised a Series B two years after that, $41 million Series B in 2015. And then they went on for another three years without a round and raised from Sequoia Capital China which uh, is led by Alfred Lin. Um, not disclosed the amount, apparently, from what I can see. 
And then that's a crazy round. So they raised their Series D in 2019, one year after. This was a $500 million round. And I've read somewhere that the post-money valuation at this point was $4.5 billion, which is a great valuation. Don't get me wrong. Like, this is a lot of money. But when you think about the fact that the round that came two years after that was done at a $100 billion valuation, this is quite a step up in just two years. And in that round, uh, I mean, here it's it's written that the funds that participated are General Atlantic, Mubadala, Sequoia Capital. I also read somewhere that Tiger was kind of a big investor in that company. Uh, so even though it's not on Crunchbase, pretty sure Tiger invested in that as well. Um uh, so yeah, interesting funding journey. A few things that are interesting to me, I guess, that we can get from the money that they raised was obviously 2008 to 2011, nothing. Uh, but then in just one year, basically one year and a half, half of 2011 to 2013, they were able to put themselves in a position to raise the $5 million round, which at the time for a purely online kind of e-commerce company, especially like dropshipping company, started by a single founder that comes from a poor background in China. Like, this is not easy to do. I mean, the funding market in China, especially on the VC side, if you think you need contacts and to be connected in the U.S. to get funding, multiply that by 100 in China. Like, you really need to know the people to even get access to these meetings unless your numbers are actually, you know, coming out of from heaven to be able to raise money for an average student coming from a poor background, solo founder in China, operating in the e-commerce business uh, without any, you know, at this stage, I guess, form of really proprietary tech. Um, to me, this is either really impressive or really suspicious in that there might be something else kind of going on around uh, this investment, but I don't want kind of to extrapolate too much. Uh, I guess perhaps just kind of voicing it, my, my inge is I wonder how much of a this random founder is actually kind of just a founder creating a company other than kind of a broader, I guess, Chinese-based initiative to create uh, an ultra-fast fashion kind of GN globally. Uh, but this is like pure speculation yeah. on my end or anything that <laughs> you're kind of riffling out there. I think you're discre- discrediting two things. I think from a lot of articles, it says that he's actually a master when it comes to like SEO and digital marketing and paid ads. And you've, you you can see throughout the story that turns out to be the case. So that's definitely one of the biggest reasons why it succeeded or maybe the biggest. And the second thing is that he had a big vision. So he wanted to cool, totally create a new model of ultra fast fashion that allows, you know, everyone to get clothing for cheap at prices, you know, that you've never seen before with, you know, a delivery that's really fast compared to traditional, you know, models. So he was really dreaming big and changing the inventory, you know, risk in terms of when it comes to fashion by changing the model of the logistics. So it was an interesting pitch for VCs. Yeah, but look, um, I mean, I get it. But first of all, there you can only be so good at SEO, meaning you can bid on specific keywords. At the end of the day, you need money to put behind that. Uh, you know, uh, you can optimize a few keywords. Like you can do a lot of things. Being good at SEO as a solo person is not enough, in my opinion, to bootstrap a business, you know, to let's say a $20 million valuation 
you know, in China in 2013, um, you know, drop shipping stuff. I, it's a, it's a long stretch for me uh, to, to believe that. And then when you're talking about like changing the way inventory management is done in China and all these kind of things, like, yes, you can say that about them perhaps 2016, 2017 onward when they had size, you know, were actually moving stuff. By 2013, if they were making more than 15 million, 20 million in revenues, let's be extremely generous. 40 million in revenues. This is still a drop in the ocean in the Chinese kind of manufacturing market. They're not moving anything. If 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 at best they can, you know, get two manufacturing facilities operating at capacity, it's already kind of a big thing. So I I, I do see the vision. I, I I do see the promise. I do see like you know how how good of a founder he might be. Uh, you know, on the SEO side. Um, it's, it's, uh, it still is very impressive and, and unique as a story for me that at this point in time with that type of background, he was able to kind of, uh, you know, get, get this going, but you know, I'm not this, yeah, obviously I'm discrediting a little bit. I understand your point. And I think at the end of the day, you, you're most likely right. And right? they didn't even have, you know, at that time their own supply chain. So they didn't have anything. It was they, a drop they shipping just rebranded. They were doing great marketing, you know, partnership with bloggers, etc. So maybe they had a big social presence at the time, but. That's basically yeah. no, exactly. You're just like a take red business. So they buy something at a price, they pay an influencer to market it, and then they sell it. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of a, an interesting thing. But this is how they actually kind of uh, grew up, uh, and then they grew up to become obviously this larger business. And I don't know if someone want to talk about some of the challenges they've had recently uh, as a brand, you know, um, around the way that they work, their practices, and all that kind of things. Yeah, I can state a few uh, to to start it off. So I think the 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 first one we can mention is the latest one, which happened, you know, a, a few weeks ago. So maybe one or two. Uh, so they're ba- they're basically being sued with a sued with a recall lawsuit, which is actually a racketeering racketeering charge uh, by the U.S. Uh, so that's basically a charge that you get when you're in a mafia organization or actually in gang in street gangs. So they're basically being accused by you know. The several designers uh, that they're you know obsessively and intentionally copying fashion designs from independent artists. So what they do is they create you know an organization full of shell companies. So there's not basically one real sheen. There's just several companies, and they always put the blame on a different one when it comes to stealing a design. A design so they can avoid the different laws. But we have to take into account that in fashion. The copyright laws and you know IP is not really protected. If you really copy the whole you know front of a design of a T-shirt, yeah, there's some you know law. There's some law in regarding to that. But apart from that, copying the textures, the garments, that's that's not protected at all. Hey, now go ahead, Phil. No, and I, I think it's it's interesting as well because that's also kind of something that we saw in last episode with Essence that you know they're they're talking with like certain designers and after basically just asking them to build. Like something very specific because they know it's going to be in 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 fact like in style in, in the next season where i completely agree that it's completely different but it's just i find it interesting how these companies find the most kind of like sharky ways to make a profit right uh, look listen to the story that i found it's, it's just crazy so there's this girl uh who goes to a um friperie uh is it the a thrift th- store a thrift store yeah. uh and then she found like a a, a nice old jacket 
And uh, she's like, oh, that's a nice jacket. She wears it. And then she decided to sell it on a secondhand marketplace. On yeah, on Depop. And uh, you, you listen to the same yeah, story? That's yeah, crazy. I got it. And then she takes a picture of her with the kind of jacket to sell it. And then, you know, it got sold like very quickly. And then she realized that this jacket, which was, you know, most likely like a one-off or just kind of a discontinued collection from a while, while back, it starts to appear like everywhere online. And it's her. It's her picture out there, like used by not only one, but a ton of different manufacturers slash brands using our own picture. And she's like, you know, what the hell is going on? And then the freakiest part is that she sees the picture getting actually deformed. So it's actually her, but then they grow the breast, they lengthen the nails, and they put some <laughs> polish on it because it might, you know, sell better. I mean, that's a very creepy story, but I think it reflects a lot this notion of, I don't care who designed that, I don't care who owned the IP, I don't even care if it's a real human in the picture. The only thing I care about is how cheap can I build it and how fast can I bring it to market? Which is, you know, to a big extent, the Shein model and the way, you know, those kind of shell structure are actually kind of created. We're going to be talking about the manufacturing angle in a minute. But yeah. yeah. Another example of how, you know, fast they want to upgrade and how little they think, you know, totally about every design is they actually were selling at one point a swastiska charm necklace. So something that's totally wrong in Western culture. So they defended them themselves saying it was actually a Buddhist symbol, but still it was a complete mistake for them. They also were saying Muslim prayer mats, but selling them as decorative mats. So totally you know, yeah, irresponsible like yeah. and culturally wrong. So sometimes mistakes happen like that and they, rec- they rectify the cases every time. So they try to settle within the designers. They try to you know remove their products as soon as it's, as it's done. But most of the time, if it's not subject to a big lawsuit, they're going to put it up after again. Maybe it's kind of a stretch, but the way I kind of actually see how they operate, just being like extremely data-driven and, and not having you know that human in the loop component that much is that most brands, if you were to draw a parallel with the investing world, uh, are kind of fundamental investors in that they see something, a market that they like, they want to create a brand identity and then you know they, they think about what's the best way to go at it just the same way a fundamental investor will actually do analysis on the market and get... But the way Shein operates is like traders. So it's purely data-driven, automated. Uh, You know, we're capturing on social media that this thing is actually getting traction. We're actually funneling that information directly to the, uh, you know, uh, software that we create, uh, you know, built in all these manufacturing facilities so they can get going right away and when it comes to moqs color all that kind of thing we're not making any decision this is only like the ai telling us this is all the optimized cost based on the traction that this thing got so it's a huge kind of data-driven operation that's automated in a big part and sometimes it leads you to the situation where you see obvious kind of mistake that should have been avoided shouldn't even in the loop you know uh was there but it's really not uh it's really not there and and the the crazy thing is that they don't care. Like it's the lucrative thing is not to correct that behavior, just to apologize for the thing and just keep on going the same thing the next day, uh, because you know that's the highest ROI thing you can actually do. What doesn't kill you make you stronger. Yeah, that's, no. that's what they think, right? But yeah. there's a few more challenges that we can talk about. Perhaps Vale, you can name a few. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like competition is also a a big one, as 
the platform that really made them who like as big as they are, TikTok, is starting to come up as a competitor with their new kind of like shopping component. And not only that, but also like the the typicals of like AliExpress and like Timu, as well as like Cupshi, Zaful, uh, Boohoo, and I could list a whole bunch of <laughs> others like Fashion Nova, etc. Um, but with these companies, they've actually been also like poaching staff and factories from Shein, which is something that's becoming a like a bit of a challenge because if all your factories are becoming poached, it's a bit more difficult, right? Um, so not only that, but with Shein is that they also have, which is kind of diving a little bit in the tech, but would love to hear both of your takes on that, is that with their, their factories at Shein, they also install a price verification mechanism to make sure of like how that's the cheapest that they can offer but they also include a, like a full crm for Shein within those factories yeah so maybe let's i think that's an amazing segue just to dive into the tech aspect of it uh so Shein is a tech company uh you know by all means and extent operating in the fashion kind of industry and just trying to break down their tech stack and how they operate how they can actually surface all the efficiencies and you know, some moral question that comes from the way they operate so there's a few kind of key components in their stack. The first one is signal capture. So the first thing you want to know as a manufacturer is, should I be building this thing? You know, what do people care about? What do people like? And the way you do that is actually through data capture at scale from everything that's happening across social media platform. And so they've built a very solid, robust kind of intelligence system to understand, you know, how fast an item is coming, is going to be sold based on the traction that it got. Uh, so the way you can actually do that is very simple, but you monitor, let's say on TikTok, how long it took for a specific item to get a specific numbers of like, then you can weight that based on who actually reposted it, are those people actually buying on my platform or not? And you can actually have like super intelligent algorithm that tell you with very minimal level of variation. This is something you should build at that price in that number of MOQ based on all the things that you've captured. So, Which is probably precisely what happened on Depop. Yeah, no, but this yeah. is exactly what happened on Depop. Like this is exactly what you build and how you build it. So the market signal capture thing is something that everyone is trying to do or is doing to a certain extent, right? You, everyone wants to capture that data. Zara is doing it. I'm sure LVMH is doing it. A any <clears throat> modern business operating in fashion and selling online needs to know what the trends are. And if these businesses are not doing it themselves, there are agencies kind of focused on doing that and providing them with that information. So that's step number one. The point is they're doing it at a, it at a scale that's unmatched by anyone else uh, globally. So that's the first part. Like, Data capture, they are doing this. It's not a controversial thing to do. They're just very good at doing it. <clears throat> the second part of their tech, which to me is is where the um, ethical considerations kind of came, come to play, is, as you've said, they say that they digitalize the manufacturers they work with. But really what they're doing is that they are you know, putting these manufacturers in the palm of their hands. So they're basically going in those factories and saying, look, from now forward, you're going to use the Shein software as your main tech engine to coordinate your company. So this is the thing you're going to be using for everything. And there's obvious pros for that in that they can automate from that point, you know, whenever they capture signal, they can send that signal to the relevant manufacturers and get everything done and, 
and shipped and you know it's much faster and more efficient to do that but then the other consideration is you know once you're a manufacturer if you're working with Shein, you need to kind of almost sell your soul to the devil in that they'll ask you to commit 100% of your manufacturing capabilities to them. Uh, why would a manufacturer accept to do that? Uh, there are a few reasons. Uh, the first one is that Shein is actually a great payer. They pay people on time all the time. They're uh, a trustable party to deal with. The second one, and I think that's important to, to understand, is that... Um, there's quite some risk and seasonality in the manufacturing business, especially in China, depending on which brand you can work with and what's your volume. And downtime is is how you die uh, in manufacturing. You want your factories to be, you know, running all day, every day. Having a machine not working uh, is the same way. It's comparable to a hotel having a room not booked, you know, for a night. Uh, it's wasted cost, uh, basically. And so you want to be running all the time. And Sheen is coming to them with a guarantee that their machine are going to be running all the time. They're going to be paid in time. This provides visibility, stability for these manufacturers. And they have the upside of hoping that one of the products they produce would actually become viral. And this is when they make real money. Um so that's the kind of hope, you know, for them. They work with Shein. They know they're going to be paid. They know they're going to be working a lot and they're going to be, you know, working fully for Shein. Um, the fact that they're working for Shein is also an advantage for Shein because now they have, you know, a fully dedicated workforce without having to fully hire them. You know, it's contractual, but they're fully dedicated to you. So just from a uh, employee management standpoint and all these kind of things, it's, obviously more advantageous. It's crazy how dedicated those manufacturers were. Maybe, maybe because they were paid in time or maybe it's because of the upside that you mentioned before, but some of them really, just most of them relocated at the same time as she and relocated in, in their history. So basically they said, if you want to manufacture for us, you need to do it in less than 10 days and you need it to be less than five hour drive from our sourcing hub where, you know, we ship those products. So basically if you can do that, we're going to change manufacturers and most of them did. Which is, which is, which is just crazy to me. Like, I mean, going back to my, uh, like initial theory, you can do that now when you're at scale, but you need to get to that point first. Um, and starting to get these relationships with those those manufacturers just as a single brand uh, and then kind of expanding from that is just crazy. Uh, you know, now when you think about the future and just the state of these manufacturers, uh, they are really owned, you know, their destiny is owned by if this company decides to work with them or not. And and then this all sounds great uh, to have your, your, to be paid on time and have your factories running like full time, you know, when you're a manufacturer. But then when Sheen comes to you and say, look, now we're going to be paying, you know, 20% less. What can you do? You're fully trapped in that. You can't even try to get new customers because you need to use their software. So they'll notice, they'll know that you're, Meals are not running full time for them, and then they'll just boot you out of the network because then they can actually see what you do. They can actually see how your machines operate. Uh, so this is a, a very totalitarian kind of a way of managing the partners you work with, uh, um, which is you know where I have lots of kind of ethical concern with the way they operate, and I think this software, this we are digitalizing our partner 
to me is um is a is a regime of of terror that you kind of impose on the people working with you have you seen some of the videos about you know of their manufacturers uh, of their you know actually their factories and some of the products that had hashtags that were like help me on the on the on the labels and different no, stuff like that. that okay so that. so basically there's videos videos circulating on on social media and a lot of them is like actually people that receive their products and they have you know in under tags no help me or uh like it's not going well like i i i, I have dental pain and stuff like that on their label and their t-shirts so that's uh, that, that's terrible but could be a joke as well like yeah, we never exactly. know we know. never know yeah, yeah, yeah. and the second I thing can't, i can't give any the second thing there's actually video inside some of those fine manufacturers and like some people you know just interviewers asking questions because for sure there has been some studies from like chinese research groups about you know the the conditions there in those factories and they say they're working you know 80 90 90 hours a week terrible conditions you see it's all dirty but then you compare that to influencer tours where they visit a sick manufacturing it's all good they work only 40 hours it's like 15 minute commutes but that's that's only a, a small subset of all their networks so basically we need to to leave some and we need to take some but definitely sketchy at some point because like you said like the amount of excuse that they're doing no way that they're doing it all of that beautiful manufacturing that they brought the influencers to right Yeah, so, uh, okay, let's dive into that. And I think it's a good, uh, okay, just want to keep on going quickly on the tech piece. Uh, and then we're going to dive into the numbers piece, which is going to be what I believe the good moment to discuss about the allegation of, uh, of uh, you know, child work and, and just poor working conditions. Um, so getting back to like the tech component first before diving into, uh, you know, some numbers that, puts us in a good good position to assess, you know, how much of a child labor and, and just labor malpractice we can actually, you know, concretely uh, ascribe to them or try to, you know, get to the surface with. So on the tech side, we've said two very important things. So data capture, uh, signal capture, and then integration with the manufacturers and just using that as a control regime to see exactly who's fully committed to them and ensure that production is actually kind of at max capacity. To me, those are like the two crucial points of their tech. But obviously, there's a lot of other companies that come to it, which is the third bucket, which is the logistics kind of component. And and this is purely Amazonian type of software, Amazonian referring to the company, in that who, which factory are you going to send the signal to uh based on your expectation of where the buyers are actually kind of going to be coming from, from a geographical standpoint. There are uh, laws, a very imp important point to mention, but for a very cheap item, you, are act you don't have actually to pay duty fees uh, when you ship under a specific amount. Uh, $800. $800. So uh, what they do is they also, you know, take that into account in their logistic, you know, function, which is if I need to send packages to the U.S., if I can keep below this specific amount, I don't need to pay any, like, duty rights. So all this kind of pure big data compute around how can I get from this finished item to a customer that receives it uh, is actually a big part of their tech. And Nothing unethical with that, in my opinion. You just work with the current rules, the rules of law, and the different countries you work with, and you you need to ship that at the most in the most efficient way possible. This is one of the reasons why we can all enjoy, you know, one day delivery from from Amazon and these kind of things. But this is just 
a very hard part of the business that many e-commerce companies, even at scale, struggle to do well. Uh, the ones that do it the best, in my opinion, it needs to be part of their DNA from very early on. Uh, you know, logistics optimization around that means you need trucks, you need to know the laws of each country. There's a lot of like nitty gritty detail and to, to go at the bottom of it, to become really good at it, it's actually a very hard thing to do. It's not just good software that you need to code. Uh, there's physical components, there are legal components, there are a lot of things kind of falling into that and they're just very, very good at it. Uh, and I think it's part of like their DNA. It's also part of like the Chinese DNA as a whole compared to like say North American companies and Amazon is obviously the golden standard for us in, in North America, uh, which Amazon is incre uh, increasingly becoming, you know, direct competitor of Shein as Shein is expanding the range of SKUs they're actually offering into new categories. Uh, an interesting point to mention as well. Uh, we might be coming to that a bit later on, uh, but there are, uh, you know, as they are kind of increasing their presence in the U S they're going to open a third party seller kind of marketplace in the U S uh specifically uh which interestingly like wanted to make like a side note on my side note here <laughs> but uh no they're opening like this third party marketplace in the US but to them it's a good way to see which manufacturers they're going to be working with for their own brand so they do that as a way to surface who is actually manufacturing stuff in the US who is actually good what the demand is and then they can start to vertically integrate once they have this data which i thought was a super interesting kind of go to market strategy to vertically integrate first start off as a marketplace and then do it uh but then logistics this was kind of the sick the third kind of big tech component and then a fourth one and, and then i'm going to pause and i'm going to let you uh, pl is everything around marketing so uh yeah. ben you you've talked about like the seo angle which was kind of the roots of chris Hsu. uh but the way they're actually allocating their marketing dollar and finding which influencer which affiliate program what money to put behind what all of that fits into the same kind of large big data model that they're using to see how they're going to actually take this image and get it, you know, in the consumer's eyes so that the eyes actually made the purchase. Uh, so those were kind of the four big tech components that to me were at the backbone of this company. When it comes to the fourth pillar, I would add everything around the gamification of the app. So they conceive their user experience so well in a sense that there's a point system. So the more you give reviews, so enticing other people to buy because you gave an honest review, the more you gain points and the more then you get discounts on future purchases. Then it's like there's so many different skills that it's hard to, you know, just browse through. But then when you select something, the algorithm tries to know you and then shows you, you know, 10 other different products that are similar to this. So you feel like you're always getting, you know, some unique choices that are tailored to your, to your, to your, your taste. So that's, that's really good as well. And I think on the point system, the more you, you buy, the more you become a consumer, the more you get, you know, exclusive promotion. So then you're just getting a viral loop that you want to go spending every spend every day and just give, taking 10 items costs you a hundred bucks. So it's not a lot. So you just want to go after and every paycheck you want to get new items. You know what? No, go ahead. Bill. No, I, and I, I think it's, it's super interesting because also on that, it's such like a snowball type of effect, right? And, I just also wanted to jump back at the logistics and also the marketing side that the logistics, I really like that you included that as part of the tech as some lots of people could just see that as a minor detail. But I think that especially it is part of their tech due to the fact that 
due to those really low shipping costs, not only is it fast, like you already mentioned, but it also saves so much money for Shein compared to like Zara and all those bigger ones because they have to pay a whole bunch of larger fees, therefore having to make um, their items more expensive to make the same profit as Shein. So yeah, that's, that's a huge kind of margin advantage. And exactly. The fact that they're sending kind of uh, directly to consumers smaller packages rather than big packages sent to the manu- the, the facilities uh, of Zara in the different countries so that they can fill their stores. Yeah. And f- for cheapness, customer accept longer delays and that's the trade-off they made and it's working. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, yo, would you buy stuff from Shein? Did you buy stuff from So Shein? I know Shein because a lot of my... You know, surrounding friends are actually Gen Zers and women, so that's directly their demographics. So everybody that has been on social networks and have friends that are women on our and my age, you know, between between eighteen and thirty five, are gonna know Shane. So they're basically everywhere. So as of myself, I've seen them, but I've never been targeted by Shane because I'm not their target customer. But for example, uh, my my friends that are women. They all, you know, tried Sheen, tried to order products. Sometimes the delivery comes wrong, but you can pay $2 for protection and get it again. So that's cheap as well. And basically you've seen friends, you know, ordering boxes with 10, 15 items of, you know, different swimsuits, but it costs them a hundred bucks for all of that. So even if they don't like two of them and it doesn't look like the picture, it's still a good, a good bargain in their opinion. So that's why they go back. That's why they order. But then at some point, if you you know, get the luxury of spending a bit more money on quality items, people try to leave Shein behind in order to to be more ethical because they understand, you know, the, the trade-offs of shopping there. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure, and sir, what you're saying is you have some friends that tried it and then they stopped? Or? So most of, most of them tried it multiple times when they need to buy, you know, items that are commoditized, so like swimsuits or stuff that they want to buy, you know, a lot from and just don't want to spend a lot of money on but then whenever they have enough income or they just can't afford to to buy higher quality products they won't buy from Shein okay. because they know it's not you know perfectly ethical but at the I same time like, like that. that's why I think is also quite interesting because lots of the clothes on Shein doesn't actually have like a brand showing on it unless it's on the the label right and I have a few friends that they hate wearing the same outfit twice So what they actually do is just buy a new outfit every single, like for every single week to go out on the weekend, which is, I get their perspective. You know, it costs like 10 to 12 to $15 for a new outfit. And that's the cost of a drink or like event, like a super cheap, right? So if you can, if, if, if you can afford it, I get it, but definitely not the most ethical, not only for the planet, but also in terms of, yeah. 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 So I, um, I actually struggle with that in in the sense that this is obviously this is so obvious. I think this is what um, is like the most annoying to me. Like the gamification angle on their site is so obvious. You know the kind of addiction they're trying to put. Like you know you're being kind of manipulated into that system, but still people are like really going for it. And obviously you're buying a T-shirt that's coming from the other end of the world and it costs you, you know, six bucks to get it at your doorstep. Obviously something happened along the way for that t-shirt to be so cheap. How do you feel about that? And then because it was so cheap, you actually bought 
10 of it. Whereas you can actually live your whole, you know, year with six to 10 t-shirts, like easily. I mean, I, I don't wear a lot of different t-shirts, like virtue, virtue signaling here, but I'm trying to say you don't need a lot and people are buying a lot from that. And this is just like conceptions of, of items that you don't need to buy. So what, what strikes me is everything I'm talking about now when it comes to like understanding that there's a cost for you to pay cheap. There's a cost to your haircut on the price you pay. There's, you know, cons- uh, impact of consuming a lot of resources when you could consume less resources. There's kind of a just ego consideration in allowing yourself to be kind of tricked and manipulated into like obviously gamified kind of shopping experiences. All of these things to me are things that the Jane Z generation grew up kind of aware of. It's not as, you know, my parents' generation where you can actually give them the benefits of the doubt, how they didn't know, you know, the impact of what they were kind of doing. The Gen Z generation was very much raised with a clear awareness of these things. And 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 again, I want to remind, they, she own 28% of the U.S. market, which is, uh, you know, by all means and sen- standards, like a very developed countries with a good like education system. So, um, so I'm just very surprised uh, by how far you're actually, how little you care about all this consideration when I'm you can have surpri- a cheap t-shirt. I'm not surprised at all, actually. I, I am, I because am. Because the Gen Z consumers are so complicated being, they, they're very vocal about everything. So they're really vocal when it comes to like something that they think is unethical about, you know what, the, the the climate change and impact on the environment, but at the same time, they are the generation that want to travel the most. So they know how, they just doesn't care how much they don't care how much you know carbon emissions they make when they travel. They just want to. They love all so much and they love unboxing packages so much because they were grown up with e-commerce that they the satisfaction just go over that reflection. So basically, they're vocal, but at the same time, they don't care about other aspects. Seems like a very confused. It's, it's, uh, it's a confused consumer. It's it's hard for brands <laughs> it's actually. Confused consumer. It's hard. <laughs> it's actually hard for brands to to know what they what they want. They want to identify with brands, but as, with the values and everything. But at the same time, they want cheapness and they want the best service, and that's why some of them go for cheap anyway. But also, wow. actually, we need to consider the fact that we're you know in a developed country, you know, with people with a good pocket for buying discretionary items such as that. But in a lot of different countries where Sheen operates in, such as India before they were banned, and a lot of you know third party countries, people cannot afford. No, but it's fine. I'm just talking about brands. the U.S. here. Yeah. Let's, let's even like just talk about the small U.S. market. Yeah, right? small U.S. markets. But yeah, but still, India is a major market, or was a major market for them as well. So we need to think bigger. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I I think it's also very funny that you mentioned that because that's what I'm saying, like. The Gen Z population is very loud about, like, the saving like, the planet and saving the environment with, like, a whole bunch of their stuff. But then they also are very loud about, like, oh, how they have zero buying power. Or there's even, like, a documentary on Netflix that just came out especially about this. But I think it's interesting to see kind of, like, that contrast of, like, you know what? I also have to save up my money for to buy a house or to go travel, like you said. So I'm just going to buy cheaper stuff. And when your favorite influencer is promoting Shein, you want to be like her, and you want to buy you want to buy the same stuff. 
All right. So uh, now I guess let's go back to the financials uh, aspect of it and just some numbers that are going to be able to, uh, you know, allow us to trickle down into the likelihood that they're actually not operating, you know, with, uh, you know, child labor and all these kind of things. So, you know, does the math work? I guess is the question. Uh, I'm crunchy trying, question. I'm, yeah, crunchy question. Does the math work? You know, show me the math. Uh, arithmetics. <laughs> right? uh, I mean, obviously we don't know. We can only like extrapolate and just try to make uh, predictions, but I think it's an interesting exercise. And to address all that topic, I'll just start from a, an article that I've uh, read from uh, the executive vice chairman at Chien, who actually comes from uh, Bear Stearns. He, he was actually leading Bear Stearns in China uh, back in the day. So, you know, banking background, uh, as you guys know, like this is the, the, the where I started my career, spent you know quite a few years in there. So this is very much an area of interest for me. Uh, and so there was an interview with him and Times uh, magazine. Uh, and it's interesting. So First off, one thing everyone needs to understand, and I think it's, it's important to kind of uh, mention, is that Shein is considering an IPO, which is an initial public offering, in the U.S. Um, this is interesting for a few reasons. First one is this move away from China um, is not the first time they do that. They're actually HQ'd in Singapore now, uh, and I think this is something they initiated in 2022. Um and the first question to ask ourselves is why would she want to IPO? Uh, as a business, they've raised, you know, combined, let's say, $4 billion uh, for a company valued at $100 billion, or, you know, $66 billion over the last valuation. This is not a lot at all. Uh, and they didn't raise you know, that much compared to just how much revenue they're generating, like 24 billion in the last year, continuously growing. Uh, so I don't know what their free cash flow situation, you know, is or might be at this stage, but it seems to me like that would be a business that could very well become profitable the minute they decided to. Uh, unlike other businesses we talked about earlier in this pod, like Glossia, for example, for which it's very hard to become kind of a profitable company. Uh, you know, they're on that direction, but it's just it's just a hard thing to do. I think Shein could very well become like a profitable company. If you look at other peers, like publicly traded peers, and I dived into, uh, you know, the financial statements of H&M and uh, Inditex, which is the parent company of Zara. Uh, and they also have like segmented disclosure for Zara, specifically as a business, which to me are two of the best publicly traded comps uh, when it comes to fast fashion. Um, so they are profitable companies. Like they make money, they make free cash flows, they have uh, net margins of about 10%, which is, you know, kind of healthy in a, in a physical product uh, environment. Net margins, not gross margin, like net margin after taxes and everything. Um, so yeah, so there, there was this interview uh, with him. And the first question is, why would Shein want to be like, a publicly traded company when they might not need to raise that much capital, you know, further on. And they could very well tap into the private market, you know, again, going forward, if they wanted to. The first reason I believe is that their early investors might want, you know, monetization, right? That's a statement that you can make. But again, not too sure about this one, because 
you know, the latest investors, Tiger, Sequoia, could just buy out the first ones. Like, and monetization could be happening on the private market side. And when you think about Sequoia, which is like kind of the biggest investor along with, with a few others, they didn't came in that long ago in the company. The company is only like, you know, 10 years old realistically. And they've raised, you know, from these funds, perhaps five, six years ago, funds that could very much, you know, easily buy out the first investors early if they wanted to. So I don't think providing monetization to your early investors is the reason why they're actually IPOing in the US. One might argue that they are doing it to uh, gain credibility. It's a PR stunt. It's a PR stunt, but it's a very, it could be a very costly PR stunt because uh, this is where I wanted to go with that is when you recall, you know, the demise of WeWork actually happened when they disclosed their numbers in their uh, S1, which is the, you know, perspectives that you put out. The first time public, the public will have access to your numbers as a private company, as you're on the road to become a public company. Uh, it's the moment where you actually open your books uh, to the world. And for WeWork, this was the start of the end. Uh, people saw, uh, I recall it was like this adjusted EBITDA before X, Y, and Z, you know, the way it was. Community yeah, adjusted. Yeah, it became, community yeah. adjusted. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of a, uh, it became a meme, right? Um, but there's, there's a lot of scrutiny. Even when you think about like, it was Lucky Coffee, right? Where, where this like huge scandal happened. Yeah. Um, just when you're becoming public, you might want to do it for the credibility, but people are really going to scrutinize you know, a lot of things in your numbers. Um, and one part of that uh, is the fact that people are going to ask the question, you know, who are your manufacturers? And Sheen has been super secretive around that. You know, we know they have a few thousands of them, but who are they? Do they have, you know, good work practices? And there's very much a don't look, don't tell Omerta type of policies with that in that Sheen will be working with some with some factories. The factories will tell to Sheen, you know, all of our workers sign documents saying they have great conditions. We are having great conditions. Sheen will be okay, perfect. That's good for me. Just make sure I can get these prices. And then, you know, I don't want to know, right? If you're doing like bad things inside and out, as long as you've given me the minimal guarantees that I can use to be unliable for working with you. That's, that's what we're going to be using like going forward. Uh, and then every time there's audits and things like that, if she audits one of their factories and realizes there's an issue, they, they won't be working with them anymore. So they're going to ban them. So they've audited at this stage as part of their efforts to become public in the US, 84% of all the factories they work with. Uh, and they are saying that they do that audit themselves, but they also hire an externally kind of recognized firm to help them in doing those assessments. And they're doing their own scorecards on how we- how good of a factory this is from a few kind of humane component. And then the ind- independent firm is actually doing its own scorecard as well. And then they're comparing the two to make sure that everything works well. Um, so then the question becomes, you know, once they get to 100%, you know, a vetted manufacturing network, could we realistically think, because by all means and extent, it's been vetted by a third party. If we start to question that, I mean, we can question everything. We can question audited statement and all these kind of things. So it obviously depends on which organization was the third party, but I assume, you know, if it's a respected one, you know, internationally recognized one, it's hard to expand on the fact that they're actually having any form of malpractice because this has been like audited. So this is more 
relevant and informative than an influencer trip. Uh, let's let's put it this way. <laughs> so to me, the fact that they are willing to go that route, knowing the level of scrutiny they're they're gonna get when they don't actually need to provide financing and monetization to their the investors, nor do they actually need to go in that market to raise additional capital because I don't think it's that much of a free cash flow intensive business and there's definitely enough depth in the private market for them to keep on raising uh, makes me think that they have a high level of confidence in their ability to address you know all the scrutiny they're gonna get uh, which which is crazy uh, which is crazy I I think the easiest path might have been to IPO um, in another country than the U.S., especially with the U.S.-China kind of tension, they're going to be scrutinized. You know, Sheen is coming in the U.S. and they're opening up. Coming in the U.S., uh, I'm talking about physically coming in the U.S. because they've been selling in the U.S. for a while, but they're physically coming in the U.S. They're opening up this third-party seller marketplace. So they're coming in the U.S. with a label on their forehead saying, we are going to compete with Amazon, which is, you know, one of the jewel of the u.s kind of tech scene and they're also saying we're going to open up our book to you guys because we're going to ipo in the u.s this is a very bold slash i don't have anything to hide type of move that is made on by them without having any gun to their head in that they have to do it so i'm very curious to see the s1 like i'm going to be looking into that you know quite seriously uh, I assume it's going to be a disaster. For me, that's my, that's my personal take. M- maybe it's financially, so the price point, or maybe it's just something in the in the S1 filing. I'm sure there's going to be you know a disaster of some sort during the S1 process if they don't remove. we got to just stay honest on the fact that there's multiple sources that say internally Shane, Shane has never said that we're going to file for IPO. So there's it's rumors, and they, as... You know themselves said that it's not true, but basically everyone on the streets know it's know it's true. It's, but it's, uh, it's, I mean, I, I worked in that space. It's yeah. It's and second thing is you look at their social media, their own channels, uh, and Sheen, where they have multiple and multiple millions of followers. People are actually really vocal now. It's like it's a point of it's a point of the it's a point of non-return in the fact that people are actually really upset with them. They want to know the truth. The sustainability reports that have they have been releasing in the past are not enough anymore. So maybe it's for them the the ultimate know, test stress test in order to see if there's a P, like if their PR holds the course. Ah, okay, okay. So okay, interesting. So so maybe what you're saying, uh, which I think is right, is that could all make sense. That's crazy. So what you're saying is, you know, people are are pissed, like the customers and all these kind of things. But to me, I'm like, ah, who cares? They're still selling like 24 billion in revenue. You know, they're making 24 billion in sales. They've been like doubling every year for like seven consecutive years. So, you know, people might be pissed. They are still buying. So, and as you've said, you know, those buyers are complex buyers. They're going to be loud. They're going to complain, but they're going to buy anyway. So, you know, at the end of the day, what matters is free cash flow. And if their capacity to generate, you know, free cash flow in the future is not armed in any way by those complaints i mean you know who cares but what you're saying i think uh, is actually that there might be a binary aspect to that in that people still buy and still shop from you even if you have you know some controversy around you up to a certain point where they don't anymore and 
and there's like that cliff happening where you actually build up that business, but at some point, you know, it's it's over. Uh, you know, the big scandals comes out. It's like the delete Uber type of campaign. Mm. Whereas yeah. once you've delete, once you've passed this specific area of uh, unethically unethical practices, it's the end of it. And then 24 billion becomes you know 100 million in like two years. And, May- and that's also one thing that I wanted to that I found interesting is that with that what you just said that kind of like that cliff, but also with the fact that you also had kind of like a decreasing valuation that maybe now they're thinking you know what might as well do it i don't think the valuation changes anything like to be frank like it's so little dilution anyway so Mm. uh, it's like they needed the capital uh, investors had had some leverage 66 billion still huge like they didn't have to cut that many people at the end of the day they raised like 2 billion at a 66 billion dollar valuation this is like peanuts on the cap table yeah so my 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 opinion to be frank uh yeah so i i think perhaps they see that moment of truth perhaps approaching and they're thinking the best way to actually address it is through an ipo in the us what 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 a, be- a bold statement what a, what a bold bet you know if there's issues coming up from that it could be like the end of the business, really. Like we work, like this wouldn't be the first time at all that we see something like that. Uh, so they're confident. And I've just been scrolling through their socials right now just to justify my point. And basically 90% of the comments are eight regarding, you know, their supply chain, regarding their ethics, regarding, you know, everything that we're, we've talked about so far. So there's definitely a point where there's if heat. you want to grow and really reach your full potential, you need to figure it out how to solve the PR and maybe that's the stun they need. Wow. 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 Let's see. Let's see where that leads. Yeah. And maybe last point, uh, I see we're kind of running, you know, uh, long on time here. Uh, but when you look at the other business, as I've said, like Zara and all those kind of things, they're like making 10% profit margin on, on, on everything they sell. They do have a few cars that Sheen doesn't uh, in like they have, you know, uh, physical stores and, and, and the rents that they pay on, on these stores whenever they lease them. Uh, they have some CapEx, you know, they do own some stores in some location. Um, that's one. They also pay a lot more in taxes because they're shipping those big bulky items versus, you know, smaller kind of sub duties uh, type of items. And, and uh, like we were talking, the, the $800 kind of threshold. But Shein is selling its stuff at a 10x discount to what Zara might be selling. So a 60 bucks jacket could be costing six bucks on on, on Shein. Uh, and, you know, it could be anywhere from five to 10 as a discount. And it's not as if Zara was not manufacturing anything in China. They're actually manufacturing lots of things in China. And they are also manufacturing in Portugal, in Turkey, and uh, they have like this huge value chain uh, optimized for cost, just like Shein does. Uh, but yet, with a T-shirt that they sell for fifty bucks, they can only make five bucks at the end. And Shein is saying, "Look, we're going to be taking the same T-shirt. We're going to be selling it at six bucks. Uh, and then, you know, how much are they really going to be making after that at the end?" To me, when you look at the PNL, the cost structure cost of goods sold this is which is like cotton and all these kind of things unless Xi'ing is buying cotton from uh areas where 
uh, known for uh, child labor, labor malpractice, which there is a few in China, they actually said that they were not. So there is not a huge difference in the price of cotton that Zara is paying versus Shein. So there's like on a gross margin standpoint, there shouldn't be much of a difference other than the manufacturer markup on that cost, which we know Shein has total leverage on because they have like 100% of the manufacturing capabilities of their partners and they are exclusively in China. Uh, so that to me, you can't save money unless you save money on how much the workers are paid in those factories. Yeah, and I feel like shipping is not that big of a difference either. Yeah, like you need to pay, you know, for shipping the same way, you know, if you're shipping. Yeah, exactly. They, they move on the same boat. Yeah. They move on the same boat. So, yeah, I, I just guess my point is whenever you look at all the variable costs in the P&L for like all these type of business, there's only a few items that can really move the needle and move the needle by a factor of 10x to get there and still be profitable. You need to be having extremely low, you know, pay to the workers You know, inventory management, the way they're actually like framing that as how they're actually saving on, on everything. I mean, the cost of inventory that you get is basically the cost of having those boxes sitting in your warehouse. So you have like huge warehouses uh, and then you pay rent on that. Uh, it's basically what you do. There's like little depreciation uh, for a specific period of time. As long as you can sell it, the item is in a box. It's it's well rested. You can put it on your shelf store whenever you want to. Yeah, it's very hard. It's very there's, hard for me to justify There's cost to dispose of the items as well in order to reach your sustainability targets. There's a lot of different costs associated with that as well, but I wonder if that's enough, right? If NX, those inventory, yes, yeah, those inventory cost savings are enough. So hard and When you look at like, yeah, like let's just let's just explain it that way. When you look at like Zara, H and M, and you look at their financials over the last like five ten years, like what net margin gain have they have they done? You know, by improving their practices. Obviously, they have models to better manage inventory as well. You know, what two, three, five percent you can improve in like your gross margin and net margin just by like pure operational improvements. Uh, whereas here we're talking about a 10x difference in pricing power. So uh, it's very hard for me to explain and understand how logistics is actually how you make those savings without like... So it's just, let's see, I have zero... Personally, I have zero faith in... I, I, I say it, I have zero faith in Chinese numbers. Uh I have zero faith if it's a Chinese firm that's auditing, you know, the the, the factories, uh, you know, that Xi'an is auditing. Uh, absolutely none. Uh, so let's see whenever, you know, S1 SEC approved filings are going to come out, what conclusions they have. I hope and expect that there's going to be a high level of scrutiny on that, given everything that we've said from like the competitive tension between a Chinese company, a U.S. company, the fact that they're more competitive to Amazon, all these kind of things are going to make, you know, they're going to be scrutinized for sure. And I'm excited to see, you know, if that bet that they're making is actually uh, the good one. Yeah. It's a big it's bet. It's, yeah. a, it's a big bet. And big the bet. SEC said it like a, in a, f a few weeks ago, in order for us to give you the green light, you know, to, to go and start the process for an IPO, you need to prove to give us the proof that there's no force in child labor and the practices of your workers are, are, are right. So 
that's if that's a Chinese, you know, third party and it's not really credible numbers, won't make the cut. All right. So uh, any anything else you guys wanted to add like on this pod? Yeah, maybe we can do like a lightning round, two minutes on, you know, playbook, the big strategy. You can all pick one, the biggest strategy that they did that allowed them, you know, to be as big as they are right now. I think that would be an amazing way to wrap it up. Yeah, no, I like that a lot, like a little lightning round. Yeah. Um, I'd say like I picked up the, the marketing where I thought that their strategies are also really interesting, that they started initially with influencers, but then when influencers got a lot more expensive, they just switched their strategy completely, not completely, but majoritarily, to direct-to-consumer social interactions. And then, so that means like Insta, Facebook, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. User-generated content. And then what's not so nice, the last part that I wanted to add, which I already mentioned previously, but they were so early on TikTok, I think that that from a, like a marketing and social perspective is something huge. And I know that we always talk about COVID, but I think that COVID, especially for this company, is really interesting due to the fact that during COVID and you, people couldn't travel, the halls were something that were huge for them, uh, that people would just take like TikToks of halls that they would buy and have to just put them on and like show it off. Kind of like you said with Gen Z, just loving opening presents. So yeah, that'd be my, my little lightning round. Yeah, I, I think it's the way their software is actually like integrated in manufacturers' plants. Um, I think this is how they can actually produce a million SKU per year. Like no way you can do it without that. And that's the core of of the Shein secret sauce machine of being able to have something go from an idea to a product in a day based on the data they capture. It's this integration, which is again, totalitarian regime in my perspective. And for me, it's really the all the affiliate and designer programs that they did. So basically offering, you know, refer, uh, commissions and referrals. If you submit your own design and it gets mixed up and they produce it, you get 30% commission and, you know, other bonus points. Same thing, you can get referrals from your friend for your friends and if they buy from it, you get a discount. You get, you know, money for every time your friends buy it. So for me, it's an in, like amazing way to get new users, okay, a way to get ambassadors for cheap and, They really designed that to, to the best level that they could. And also likability also that people, since they know that they can create something for you, they feel like it's a lot more special and therefore care about you. So, yeah. Authenticity. Yeah, authenticity with <laughs> 90% of the comments being kind of hate comments. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. But it was an amazing part. No, no. Yeah. Maybe one last, one last, one last lighting round. Uh, you can give only one answer, one word. Okay. Uh, Is Shein a good or a bad company uh, for the world? Good, bad, or evil? Good, bad, or evil. All right, feel. I'll start. I have to say kind of evil. Evil? Just due to my assumptions, but I'll leave it at that. I'd say, I'd say bad. I'd say evil. Oh, say evil. no, <laughs> I, th I think they're doing a good, a, a good thing, which is offering choices for customers. I don't think it's you good decide enough. as the end consumer what you want to consume, yeah, think, not the company. I, I think people are malleable and they're being, you know, malleated. And I don't, I don't think that's great. <laughs> This, no, I, I don't think allowing you to eat uh, a fifth steak because you like steak is is doing any good for you because you have the choice with that steak. Uh, but really this is more idea. more of a uh, philosophical argument. Yeah. Perhaps you can pick that up later. <laughs> off cam. Yeah, off cam. All right. Thanks so much, guys. It was a cool one. Awesome. Bye. Bye. See you. Bye.